for nine, nine of those years of my retirement, uh, including the years that involved the Save the Dew uh, campaign. So that, that sort of occupied my, uh, my intellectual uh, uh, thirst. Um, other than that, uh, I had some opportunities to, uh, to travel and to play golf. Uh, Watch my kids grow up and the grandchildren. So it's it's, it's pretty classic retirement syndrome. <laughs> uh, yeah, just to, to remind people that uh, there were three Zurichny boys, all of them at Regi grads, uh, um, Terry, Rob, and Randy, and uh, that they all would have gone through the school at a time when Mr. Zurichny was, or Ed, was the principal of the school. Um, so maybe you can just start us off uh, in another vein here, and we'll talk talk a little bit about uh, where you came from before you came to Rigi. Well, um, my story begins in 1961. I think that was the the year that I joined the teaching staff at uh, uh, Rigi Apples College. Prior to that, I uh, was born and raised in Sudbury, Ontario. I graduated from St. Charles College, which was a Brazilian high school in Sudbury. Went on to uh, get my university degree at Assumption University in Windsor, which again was a Brazilian uh, orientated uh, university, and subsequently picked up courses at Queen's and, and, and Western. Um, so my first association with Kingston was uh, in well, September of uh, 1961. And at that time, Reed Joplin's College was a Jesuit boys boarding school. Most of the students that were at, uh, at Rigi were uh, boarders with a few uh, students who were known as uh, they were called uh, day students. So uh, the first few years of my uh, relationship was largely in the capacity as a teacher. I taught uh, chemistry, physics, and, uh, and math. Um, and I did that for roughly five or six years. So uh, I have some very fond memories of, uh, of those years. They're very vivid when you're beginning a whole new career. Uh, that part of your life, I think, kind of stands out in different ways. Um, the staff of Reed Joplin's College only had five lay people at that time, uh, two of which were uh, uh, the Gaisley brothers, Neil Gaisley, the oldest, and Ray Gaisley, um, and a staff member of Will Pluard, who probably is the most interesting, intriguing, intriguing and mystifying character <laughs> that I've met in my life. Um, I got, I had the opportunity to get to know him as a, as a colleague. Most of the people knew him as a teacher-student relationship, and, I, and I'm sure they have a lot of stories that are associated with uh, with their perceptions of them. Yeah. So I, th I, th I think that's about 
the early years, so to speak, and I'll just kind of pause and leave it at that. Sure. Um, yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, that uh, uh, the vivid memories of the early years. I, I maintain I could name, uh, if I met on the street, uh, any of the kids that I taught probably in my first three years, I could, uh, I could name them. I, I would know them and name them uh, better than I could the kids that I taught in the last few years. It's just that, that I seem to have more capacity for memory at that time. And uh, they, they just stuck out to me more than, more than anything. So yeah, I, I agree with, uh, or I can empathize with that for sure. Um, so did you have a, a mind to administration uh, early on or, or were you kind of recruited into that? Not really. I, I, I think I sort of fell into it in a, in a way. It, it was never a goal or a pursuit of mine. Uh, my purpose in coming to uh, Kingston was largely uh, related to Queen's University, which uh, uh, had a med school, because my ambitions when I left and graduated from university was to pursue a career in medicine. And I felt that if I came to Kingston, that I'd be in the vicinity of Queen's, that I could pick up some courses, and that would enhance my opportunity to um, begin a career in, in, uh, in medicine, and also an opportunity to uh, to make some money teaching. Uh, as it turned out, teaching was such a turn on that I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, uh, so much so that my uh, thoughts and plans for medicine were basically uh, put to rest. Yeah. And, uh, but those were difficult years in, uh, in Catholic education. Uh, there was virtually no funding. There were private schools and uh, people had to pay tuition. And that was limited the enrollment significantly. Although it was a boarding school, many of the students were Americans. Um, a lot of them in the senior grades, because in 1961 were the years of the Vietnam War, and there were a number of American students who attended Rigi as a way of evading the draft. Right. <laughs> and there were a number of students also from, uh, from Mexico and South America from very, very wealthy families. Um, I recall one Mexican family met. The father was uh, the president of the Bank of Mexico, who a few years later became president of the, the World Bank. And there were others that were, uh, had, let's say, a worldwide international reputation. Um, but you know as well as I do as a teacher, when you, when you spend 185 or 200 days with with the student. They get to know you very well. You get to know them very well. And there's a certain kind of kinship that, that, that develops. So a lot of those a lot of those students that that I taught still are uniquely fresh in my memory. Right. Um, you know, they're virtually embedded uh, within my 
within my being, so to speak. Do you remember what tuition costs would have been for uh, day day students at that time? Well, in, in the days, I can't be accurate on that. It would be speculation, but when, when the cost of a gallon of uh, gasoline was around 25 cents in 1961, um, the tuition was probably around $150 a year. Yeah, I think I remember in... And I think that's, that's for some reason or other, I think if you were a day student, that was what the tuition was. What's the tuition for a boarding student? I, uh, I have no idea. Yeah. You never lived at the school, did you? No. No, okay, no. all right. But there were some staff who did. Maybe earlier on than that. The, the only staff member who actually lived on the property at Spratt House uh, was Wilt Pluwire. And uh, Spratt House was a, uh, a building on the original site. It housed the Sisters of St. Martha uh, on the main floor because they provided the food preparation services for the, uh, the boarders and also the, uh, uh, the, the uh, Jesuit staff. And the, uh, the next two floors were occupied by the senior boarders who were grades 11, 12, and 13. Um, and he, I suppose, lived in one of those uh, rooms and probably was a senior prefect of a kind to make sure that the shenanigans were <laughs> not too uh, absurd. Okay. Yeah. And he, he later, I, I remember in my day, he, he, he moved up to... Um, Westdale Ave, I think, up by St. Joe's Church, and lived up there in the late... Yeah, there late... was a tiny little house that he bought on Westdale Avenue, which actually wasn't too far away from where I was living, because I lived in an apartment for a couple of years on Westdale Avenue as well. Um, but he had bought the house well after, well after that. As a matter of fact, I think a former... Uh, former teacher that you would know, Tom Maston Toronto, I think, um, bought his house. Yes. Um, I, uh, I have distinct memories of that house because uh, I, I discovered him uh, unconscious one day in the house. Um, when he retired from teaching, I arranged for him to still continue teaching part-time at, uh, at the school and then one, one morning he didn't arrive and I phoned his home and he didn't answer the phone so I drove out to his place and uh, I managed to, uh, to get in and discovered that he was unconscious in the on the kitchen floor, which we call an ambulance, and he subsequently survived, but never returned to teaching. Yeah. Eventually ended up in uh, Providence uh, uh, care. And I think it was my brother Frank who took over for him um, in the in that year that he was that he was out. Um, he did. He yeah. Did. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
So maybe just back to the 60s then, um, an interesting time that I, I know very little about, um, um, which is not strange, I suppose. Um, but the transition from the two schools to the one, were you in administration at that time? Were you a vice principal yet or were you still teaching? I was still teaching until uh, 1967. Uh, during that period of time, from 61 to 67, the Jesuits had, had decided that they were going to be leaving Rigi, and they had notified the Archbishop that they were planning to, uh, uh, to leave Kingston. And during the same period, the facilities of Notre Dame Convent had deteriorated to the point where they wouldn't be able to continue classes on that on that site, which currently is the site of the uh, uh, the Kingston Public Library in the old Bishop's House, that's uh, on Brock Street. Um, so the Archbishop at that time arranged to have these girls at Notre Dame Convent join Reed Jaffa's College, and that started in 1967. So in 1967, the students from Notre Dame Convent occupied the same site as the students from Reed Jaffa's College. And they came over with their own staff. The Notre Dame sisters taught the girls, and the Jesuits and the lay staff taught the boys. So it, it started as a co-institutional school on the same site, and was sort of the forerunner of Rejoptus Notre Dame. And uh, that was the year in which I was asked to become the vice principal of both institutions, okay. <laughs> uh, which uh, which was a formidable task. Uh, it was like putting a big kick me sign on your back, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> trying to have two religious orders uh, and two different cultures occupying the same building uh, did present some challenges to say to say the least. Okay, and the uh, the Jesuits were not accustomed to uh, uh, to having or teaching girls. In fact, they, they didn't they didn't have the uh, the authority to teach girls. It was only a few years later that they got a uh, a dispensation that allowed them to teach. Uh, co-educational classes, and the uh, uh, the Notre Dame sisters were equally uncomfortable teaching boys. Um, they each had their own staff room. Uh, there was a principal for the boys section, and there was a principal for the girls section. And I was the glue trying to keep the two of them together. <laughs> So I, I, I think it, 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 it certainly 
facilitated my development of negotiating skills. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm really proud of those years. <laughs> yeah, I, that's I, that's a formidable task. Knowing yeah, knowing knowing what I know of the Jesuits and the Jesuit way, and and the, knowing personally a lot of CNDs. A lot of strong, strong characters there, and, and a lot of strong traditions within the uh, within the um, movements within their the orders. Um, so <laughs> I don't envy you that uh, yeah. that task. So yeah, well, you you could see the transformation within the student body, uh, which was really conspicuous. I mean, suddenly. Suddenly, the boarders would comb their hair and shave a little more, <laughs> <laughs> and and suddenly, um, for the uh, uh, Notre Dame girls, their their hairstyles and the use of cosmetics became a little more apparent. <laughs> that wasn't all too pleasing <laughs> to um, uh, to some of the uh, the sisters. So it. I mean, there were there was challenges that that came up even within the student interaction for each of the genders, and it was it was you know um, quite a phenomenon to observe. <laughs> yeah, and, and you had said uh, just a few minutes ago that the the Jesuits had indicated that they were pulling out of Catholic education. Um, do you have a sense of what what time that would have been, like mid '60s, early '60s? Like when would that have been? That would have been somewhere around 1965. Yeah, '64, '65. I think they uh, uh, they uh, made the announcement. I, I think it coincided with the year in which Archbishop. Wilhelm um, became the Archbishop of Kingston after okay. Archbishop O'Brien had died. Okay, and I think uh, you know I've heard the story that that the day after Archbishop Wilhelm arrived in Kingston and was seated, the Jesuits went to him and told him that they were leaving Kingston, and essentially he didn't. He didn't want to close both schools under his watch. So we came to him as quite a surprise. He, he called me at that time and asked my thoughts in terms of what the future could hold in store for, for the school. Because um, whether or not it should continue if it did continue, under what circumstances uh, did the people, you know, did the Kingston community want it? So there were a number of issues that 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 came into play as a part of a discussion to to see what would happen to Catholic education once the Jesuits left, and um, that actually happened in 1972. 1972 was the year in which was my first year as principal and the Jesuits had already left and uh, reached Joplin's College as a boys boarding school. 
uh, ended. And that was the year in which a co-educational Regiopolis Notre Dame was founded. Okay. Um, because one of the things that I I did as a as a vice principal and also as a principal was to mix the classes where the boys and the girls were segregated in their teaching, which meant that some classes weren't really well balanced. And finally, I was able to get the approval of the Notre Dame sisters that would allow boys to be in the same classes as girls, and girls to be in the same classes as boys. And that brought about some changes, uh, stressful at that, on the part of teachers who suddenly, um, you know, males teaching women and women teaching males and they had no history or experience in doing that. Their sense of humor was quite different. <laughs> um, their own culture was quite, quite different. But that was the origin of of Regis Notre Dame, and that really started in 1972. All right, and the, the Sisters of Notre Dame hung on for a long while. Sister Vera was still there when I was when I was teaching. She might have taught until '97, I think. Um, around then, she would have been the last of them, but they were still a pretty strong contingent through the '80s when I was when I was going there. Sister Rose, Sister Mahoney. Um, Sister Trudeau, there were still a number of them there. Well, without question, Regis Notre Dame would not have survived without the presence, support, and commitment of the Notre Dame sisters. They provided the staff, and and because they were paid at the same rate as lay staff were paid, of which there were only five at that, at that time. Um, the school was able to function more economically and, 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 and survive and kept that, helped to keep the tuition rates within reason for the, uh, the Kingstonians who decided that they would go either to Notre Dame or to reach out to college. So, yeah, the, 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 the presence of the Notre Dame sisters, their staffing, their financial support, ensured a, a lifeline to reach out to Notre Dame before full funding came in. Without, without their assistance, I think the school would have was there, was there ever, ever a time that you, th you thought, this is done, this is over, not going to last, we can't do this anymore? Do you, do you remember any, any time that it was that dire? Oh, yes. Um, that, that happened shortly after 1972. Uh, which was when the two schools really were integrated, uh, so to speak. And it was a new, different kind of school. And 
Archbishop Wilhelm um, and Michael Cardi, who was the board's solicitor at the time, uh, created a new school called Roman Catholic High School at Kingston, a.k.a. Rejoplis Notre Dame, and, and, and formed a private administrative board that looked after uh, the responsibilities of grades 11, 12, and 13, which was the private portion of, uh, of the school. The students in grades 9 and 10 were under the jurisdiction of the separate school board, so their funding and staff for those students were paid for out of tax dollars by the, uh, by the separate board, whereas all of the costs associated with staffing and the wedding of grades 11, 12, and 13 was a responsibility of the private administrative board, and their funding came from, uh, from, uh, from tuition. And the tuition never really covered the expenses of running grades 11, 12, and 13. And the Archbishop, I think, was kind of picking up the losses for a while. And that was also a period of time when Catholic schools right across the province were closing. Uh, some very famous schools were closing in Ottawa and, and Toronto and, uh, and elsewhere. And, and I remember attending several meetings that were dealing with this issue. And, and there was a feeling on the part of some parts of the Kingston community that uh, they could cut their losses, so to speak, and close the school, and that would be the end of it. Um, but that was countered by another group of people who really believed that the school could be saved, that the school could be flourished, and that we could read some life into it. Uh, and there were some very committed people who uh, put in a lot of time and effort. So in, during that period of time, I suggested that maybe we should do some fundraising to build another school, which was really kind of ridiculous because they were wondering how they could even keep the existing school together. Uh, but um, fortunately, there were some people who were prepared to uh, uh, get involved in a fundraising drive, which turned out to be very successful. Uh, it raised a couple million dollars that enabled the next version of Reed Joplin's College to form, and that opened in 1977. Uh, and the, the other buildings were torn down, and, and, and that was a sad sight to see because they were beautiful limestone, uh, limestone buildings, but they were not historically designated as, uh, as such. Yeah, uh, there was a time when uh, 
we are on the cusp of a de demise. But we were rescued, I think, by some people who really believed that that if the Kingston community wanted a Catholic school, um, they had to work to get it, and they did. I remember um, Mr. Ledoux, Hugh Ledoux, running um, uh, a lottery. Um, do, you, do you remember those those days? Um, um, uh, um, I forget what the prize was, but the, I think it was a hundred dollars a ticket or something like that. And uh, anyway, I, I just I remember Mr. Ledoux. Well, the, the fundraising took many forms. Um, you know, traditionally, we, you know, the the uh, the parent group was absolutely phenomenal in that in that process. I mean, they they held bazaars, Christmas bazaars, bake sales, ran bingos. Uh, uh, the community really pitched in to, to do that. Um, there were a number of Wolf Islanders where, you know, their commitment to, uh, to supporting the school and, and raising money, uh, you know, the, the coffees and the Fargos were certainly um, burned in my memory in terms of of how, how they worked, I think, to um, raise funds for the school. Hugh Ledoux, on the other hand, was a very good friend of Archbishop Wilhelm, because the Archbishop Wilhelm, before he came to Kingston, was a cha chaplain in the armed services. And uh, uh, when Hugh Ledoux retired, I think he was a brigadier general of the Air Force, he decided to live in Kingston, and Archbishop Wilhelm invited him to become sort of the business administrator of the private board that technically really looked after the finances associated with the operation of grades 11, 12, and 13. And uh, he's the one that handled the, the fundraising uh, money that was collected. and. Uh, um, yeah, I mean those are uh, those are fun years, and the different things that were done to raise money. And, and I know um, Father Tim Shea at that time arranged to bring the Flying Fathers into Kingston as a fundraiser at the Memorial Center, and I got a, a cream pie in the face. <laughs> 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 I, I tried to explain to kids a few years ago about the Flying Fathers, and it was a completely foreign, they'd never heard of such a thing. I said they were a very, very big deal. Yeah. Uh, played yeah, all over the world. They were almost sort of like the uh, Harlem Globetrotters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little Canadian ilk. What did they, uh, their, their motto was the Flying Fathers, skating to beat hell. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I remember seeing that on Tim's, Father Tim's hockey bag. Yeah. Um, yeah. um this, that's interesting. So, so you went from vice principal at a time of transition between, uh, or the glue, kind of acting as the glue between the Sisters of Notre Dame and the and the Jesuits, and uh, and then took over at a time when there were two school boards involved in running the school. Right. Um, was was that a a, a difficulty? Uh, was that a, a kind of a, a dicey dance to do? To keep the with the two school boards acting in the same school. 
Well, it, it, it was somewhat similar to trying to negotiate uh, agreements between uh, the Jesuits and the Sisters of Notre Dame. <laughs> okay, so it, again, you're dealing with two different par parties, technically with the same goal and purpose in mind, but have a different way of going about doing it. And uh, yeah, uh, it required a lot of negotiation on on the part of both the separate school board and and the private board to try and find a way of keeping the school alive. Um, probably. The most difficult moment in my recollection was the school was losing money on a on a day to day basis because the tuition really couldn't cover the cost, and um, and the bishop was kind of covering the losses, so to speak. But that couldn't continue forever. And I, I proposed that maybe if, if the parish that had a student attending Rejoplis Notre Dame could contribute to the tuition. And technically that simply meant that there would be a, a sort of a levy and an assessment that would be imposed on different parishes if they had students that were, were going to read Joplin's Notre Dame. You know, technically a, an internal tax on Catholic education. Um, that That did not make things easy <laughs> for the Archbishop. And I, 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 I have some of those, the fondest memories of, of him because he invited me to attend a meeting with all of his parish priests where he was proposing this. And I thought there was going to be a coup. <laughs> <laughs> uh. and, and, and I was looking for the nearest door to escape. <laughs> um, so it, it was not a it was not a popular uh, uh, suggestion among some of the parishes to uh, agree to uh, paying a bit of a, a levy because the parishes if you had more students from a given parish that went to uh, uh, reaching Notre Dame the larger the the assessment and, and all of the parishes had their own needs to, to, uh, uh, to look after. Um, anyway, he, uh, he was a very gentle soul, except I think in this education, he kind of wrapped his ring on the table and, and 
that's what happened. <laughs> I, I have very, very fond memories of Archbishop Willem. I served uh, yeah. on the altar well, at, at St. Mary's, uh, and, and I was his... I was uh, called on to serve as mitre and crozier bearer whenever he did a high mass, and that right. was, I, I was very honored by that. Yeah. And uh, uh, yes, so. Yeah. Um, so you know, we can we can look back and, and pay tribute to the contributions. I think that that you know the Jesuits made and the the Notre Dame sisters, but the 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 archbishop and the parishes, you know rose to the challenge and, and came through. Um, and again, they, they were a huge part of the solution of the problem that allowed us to keep, keep the school going until full funding. And then full funding really didn't come into being until 1985. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, we had the the new school, the first iteration of, of the new school was in 1977. So there was a period of seven years where we were operating as a uh, as a private, a quasi-private school and a, and a public, publicly supported grades of 9 and 10. So, um, yeah, finances was always a uh, a big issue. Um, was there talk about the design of the seventy-seven building? Was was there ever any design that uh, included part of the old building? Was there ever any ever any any move to or any desire to keep one one of the structures of the old building up and and amalgamate it or move it into the new building? Yeah, I, I remember um, working with the architect of the first iteration of the school, um, who was Joe Dominic, and uh, uh, I, I, I felt it was extremely important uh, we preserve uh, a lot of the history, or as much of the history that we could, of the original buildings. So you'll note, if you want, you know, in the main entrance of 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 the 1977 school, there's a there's a trophy case, and you will notice that the edges on that trophy case are made out of limestone that was saved from the demolition of the uh, the original buildings, and you will note that the cornerstones from those original buildings are embedded on that trophy case. Yeah. And the dates of that. In fact, in one of those limestones, I, there, there's a cup, copper capsule, sealed copper capsule, that um, has some contents in it that I put in that is now embedded in the other cornerstone because um, the other cornerstone has the 1977 date of the school being built. And the other cornerstone was, I think, 1914 of the original building. Yeah, so those those stones were incorporated in that building. Not to mention the fact that one of the rooms in the uh, that building was a prayer room, and it's a very tiny little room. 
And all of the walls in that room are red brick. And that red brick was rescued from Spratt House, which was one of the buildings that was on the original site on Russell Street. So um, all of that limestone, and I remember talking to Joe Dominic because that was quite a, it was quite a challenge to take that brick once that building was demolished, to set it aside and to clean it to the point where they could actually, the masons could actually put it back in into, uh, um, into the prayer room. So yeah, that, that, that history is embedded in, right, but, in the but, 1977 school. But they never, they, they, they never said, let's, let's keep Sprout House up and connect the, the new school to it or anything like that. Yeah, those site plans were uh, taken into consideration, and, and uh, it, it just wasn't it just wasn't feasible to 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 do that. Uh, so the upper parking lot of the school really is the is the burial site of the uh, um, of the limestone buildings, and including Spratt House, uh, because the limestone buildings, you know, one building was strictly a, a classroom building; the other building was uh, house the administrative offices and the and the dormitories and the uh, rooms for the Jesuit staff and boarders and uh, and there was a gymnasium and a cafeteria um, and the like. But uh, no, it it was not within the economics to to save. Yeah, I, I just think it would have been a tremendous amount of money to. To even renovate those the interiors of those buildings to bring them up to uh, seven nineteen seventy seven code because I remember being in them when right. I was a kid the right. gym the gym where a jump shot was impossible you know there were you know what I'm talking oh about. yeah 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 for sure um, and that's that's very very interesting um, so the seventy seven building is built with the cooperation of the Ministry of Education, obviously, the separate school board at that time, and the admin board, which did, which served right. as the board for the grade 11, 12, and right. 13 students. Okay. Um, you talked about the advent of full funding in 85, 86. I know some, some schools elsewhere, uh, De La Salle uh, and St. Mike's, opted not to take full funding. Was there ever any discussion about that at Regi? There was. Um, I think you will note that in those situations the religious orders I think had the financial health to be able to continue um, without receiving the full funding. Okay. Um, you're, you're dealing with an entirely different client base. You know, the, the, the people who, the parents who have their children go to a, a private boarding school are usually very well off. 
and don't mind paying some of the fees that are associated with the operation of a boarding school. So those religious orders um, were able to withstand some of the pressures of a lack of uh, funding. The Jesuits actually, you know, their their kid school was very was a Loyola in Montreal, okay, and and which was a much bigger school, and they had one other boarding school that I knew of at that time was in was in St. Paul's um, in Manitoba. So they were they were operating only three three boarding schools at that time in Canada, and Rigi was the only boarding school that they ran in Ontario, and 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 Loyola in Montreal was basically their flagship school, and uh, uh, I remember when I was coaching hockey that one of the annual games was to have the Rigi boys play the boys from Loyola in Montreal on a kind of a home and home basis. Um, um, I, I don't recall winning too many games. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, that's interesting. I, I never knew you as a, as a coach. Was there other extracurricular involvement at the school? What, what else did you do beyond the classroom and the administrative? Wow. One of the one of the things that occurred in the early sixties, each of the high schools had a radio club. And every week uh, a high school was asked to uh, prepare um, a one half hour program. Uh, to be aired over um, uh, CTWS actually was the uh, was a radio station, and I was asked by the principal to look after the radio club, which I knew nothing <laughs> about, and so. I, uh, I put a little blurb out to find out if any of the boys from the boarders were interested in being part of a, of a radio club if you wanted to have a career in, in broadcast. So for five or six years, part of my time would be working with a couple of the kids, and we would prepare a one-half-hour program uh, to be aired on CKWS. Um, one of the guys who was really good at it, who currently is a lawyer in the city, Michael Wu, was actually my in charge of my radio club as a student, and he, you know, he he worked with some of the other kids, and and what he would do is a, a lot of what you're doing. Uh, is he would interview students and staff and, and put those interviews on. 
uh, uh, on the air, either by tape or by a long knife. Okay, uh, and it, you know it, it was sort of a uh, a recap of what happened in the school that week. You know, what games were won, what the scores were. It's a sort of you know, right. sort of a, a summary of the weekly activities. So that that was kind of a fun uh, project. Um, Regionals College also had two hockey teams, which um, when when the Jesuits left, they those two teams were were abandoned, and Wilf Pluard, out of his own pocket, sponsored those two hockey teams, a junior team, uh, a Bantam team, and a midget team. And um, I coached one of those teams, and he coached the other team. And um, uh, they were called the Pluwire Panthers. We participated in the, uh, uh, in the local RKMHA minor hockey league kind of thing. Um, in one of those years, I took a team to PEI during the March break, and we played in a in a tournament in uh, in Charlottetown. So that was a, a momentous occasion. Yeah. So, yeah. In terms of extracurriculars, uh, that took a a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah. I did. I did not know that. He was a, was a hockey coach. Um, I knew about Mr. Pluard. I'd heard stories about him. He didn't skate, and he would stand at center ice and in galoshes and sort of direct the practice that way. Maybe with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth too. Yeah, he would leave a uh, <laughs> a puddle of uh, X4D cigarette butts. <laughs> uh, couldn't get away with that today. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then now he was—he actually was responsible for Joe Pryor joining the staff at Regis Notre Dame. I don't know how many people are, would know of the story, but. After he was found unconscious on Westdale Avenue and was admitted into Providence Care, he was he was dying of lung cancer, which was not a great surprise. Um, and I would go and visit him during lunch at uh, Providence Care, uh, and we'd have a conversation. And we talked about a lot of things. Um, I, uh, I had the good fortune to see what he was like as a person other than um, uh, as a teacher and a colleague. Uh, he was a very, very private individual. Uh, in any case, uh, one day we were having a conversation when uh, he said, well, I don't think I'll be returning to teach at the school. 
Of course, we kind of intuitively both knew that that was the case, but we never really kind of talked about it. And I said, well, yeah, it's not anything that I'm looking forward to, and I'm not, can you, you know, I'm not sure how I'll ever be able to replace you or find someone to take your place. And he thought a while and said, well, there's a former student of mine. He went to Rigi and I, and he's now teaching English at Sydenham High School. Maybe he would be interested. So why don't you contact him? Uh, which I did. I phoned up Joe Pryor and introduced myself. I said, well, you know, we, we have a common friend in, in Will Pruad and kind of brought him up to speed on the conversation that we had and said, you know, could we meet and, and, and whether, whether he would be interested in joining the staff at uh, Regent Notre Dame. Uh, Joe Pryor had been teaching for the Frontenac board for a number of years. Um, and he was well, well established within, uh, within that board. In any event, much to my surprise, he left that board and joined the staff at Regent at Notre Dame and replaced Will Pruitt. He only, my recollection, he only taught grade 13. And, and, and of course, the years when, when grade 13 existed and there were departmentals, I mean, that's a whole story in itself. Yeah. Okay? I mean, if you were a teacher or a student, okay, and the, the pressures that, that were related to, to um, uh, trying to succeed in departmentals. And, and that was the uh, that was how Joe Pryor joined the staff of Regent plus Notre Dame, and he was about as close to being a, 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 a duplicate of Will Fuller. They had the same mannerisms, the same techniques, the same strategies. Um, um, Joe Pryor had a had had his had his own marking scale. Hundred didn't exist. In fact, there were no numbers over ninety. <laughs> which, which in itself, and I'm not going to get into the details associated with that, but, but that that did was a source of consternation for uh, uh, students and parents and, and me in particular. I'm surprised to hear that because from my experience, he never had a mark over 65. I, I certainly never got one of those anyway. But in the long run, uh, Mr. Pryor ended up being, I guess I'd call him one of my teaching heroes, right, uh, along right. with Joe Lynch. And so, you know, if someone wasn't taught by Will Pluwire and they were taught by Joe Pryor, they were essentially taught by a very similar people. Right. Yeah, no, no nonsense for sure. I have a great deal of admiration and respect for Mr. Pryor. Um, I think I'm running out of time here on my computer, and we've been talking for 
pretty close to an hour. Um, so I think I'm going to I'm going to wrap things up. I'm going to ask you a few questions, sort of rapid fire questions, just yeah. two or three, um, just to just to wind things up. So thing that you're most proud of as principal of Regi. I don't think I could isolate it to one item. There are many, many, many things, and I would, I would, it would be unfair to exclude other things. Cer certainly, I think, I, th I think that it survived as Canada's oldest English Catholic high school is a significant achievement. And, and all of the people who contributed to its being and, and the sense of ownership they have in that history, I think that's important. But there are equally other individual accomplishments on the part of students and staff that make me very proud to hear of what Reggie Notre Dame students were able to do once they left the school and graduated, I, hearing their stories and their successes pleases me uh, enormously. Uh, so each of those successes is a uh, is a proud a proud moment. And I often think, even though I may be wrong in my thinking, I, I somehow prefer to believe that Regiopolis Notre Dame produced more graduates that went into the teaching profession than any other school that I'm aware of. The number of graduates from Regie Notre Dame who ended up teaching at Regie Notre Dame, who also ended up teaching elsewhere. And I think, I think those graduates who knew the ethos of what it is to be a Regie Notre Dame student, and they continued that in their own teaching, whether it was at, at their alma mater or whether it was elsewhere. But I'm, 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 I'm very proud of the number of teachers that I know of who uh, have made some huge contributions in education out there. And there's quite a list of them. So, yeah, not but, the least of which would be yourself. Right? So. <laughs> there, I, I did a count one time early in my career, and I think there were maybe 75 teaching staff. I think uh, almost half, 33, had had uh, gone to Regi, had gone to Regi Notre Dame. And uh, and I think that's still mm -hmm. fairly consistent um, down down the line. Um, yeah, and you know, I, 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 I have some reservations of going on to, to mention names, but 
but um, um, Barry O'Connor, who passed away while he was director of education of the Frontenac County Board of Education, was a Regent rat. He was, he was my first head boy of the student council when I, when I, became, when I became principal. Uh, another individual, Don Goodrich, was a student that I taught, graduated from Regi, returned to Regi, taught for a year or two, taught at LaSalle Secondary School and ended up becoming the director of education at the Hamilton uh, Public School Board. And there are many, many others who, I, you know, who spread their wings in many different places and, and had a very profound impact, I think, on, on education. And I, I like to think that, that what they learned at uh, their alma mater held them in good stead elsewhere. Very good. That's something that pleases me greatly. But there are people who have succeeded enormously and in other careers, I can go through many students who ended up being huge successes in, in other fields in business, industry, technology, medicine. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Well, I think we may have to do this again sometime. <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love to. I, I mean, there's, there's so much there. I, you, know, I, you, you get to a point in, in one's life at, at my age where, where what you see in the rearview mirror is, is a lot more than what you see in the front windshield. So <laughs> if there's anything in that, in that mirror that may be of interest to... Uh, uh, to any of the Reggie Notre Dame alumnus, I'd be delighted to share it with you. Good. I think we will we will plan to do this again then. And uh, with that in mind, we have over an hour here, and I think I'm running out of time on my on my program. So we'll sign off now. And I want to thank Mr. Zirkney for Ed for joining the podcast, the inaugural podcast, which again I hope is one of many. And um, we will sign off until next time. Thank you. Okay.